like if we're all just investing in picks and shovels, nobody's ever going to find gold. And I really would like to see the venture industry specifically move more towards the application layer. And I think that's where it's going. You know, time was whoever had the most technical investors would probably be the best venture firm in crypto. That's what drove outperformance. But I think you're moving in a fundamentally different direction. You have to play more at the app layer. And, you know, funding all L1s right now feels like you're kind of fighting the last war, which is just going to be increasingly less relevant. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to the first official roundup uh, of Bell Curve. I'm joined by uh, Mike's one and two. We'll see who, who's who by the end of the show. Uh, we got Yano and Vance. Fellas, welcome. Macro Thank Mike. You. Micro Appreciate Mike. It. Thanks for Thank kicking you. it off. Happy to be here. We're cutting that. That's, this, that's not, that is just not how we're going to start this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Spe- speaking of micro, by the way, we're going to chop all the other stories uh, that we all want to talk about. There's a one big story that we got to talk about this week, right? That's the Vitalik. Speaking of, that's the Vitalik. Uh, no, I thought you were going to naturally go. Speaking of micro, micro strategy, Michael Saylor. No, dude, I'm one step story, ahead of you. you. Go I'm one step ahead of you, dude. All right, I got, I got some good memes saved for the end. Don't worry. Um, all right, but let's actually get into it here because we got limited time. So uh, Vance and Michael begged uh, to talk about macro this week. So that's where we're actually going to start um, with uh, this chart here. So we're looking at uh, the DXY, right, which is the index of the dollar. Uh, and then we're looking at um, the NASDAQ in Bitcoin. So basically, just I don't want to rehash too much, but there was, uh, you know, the Fed had their Jackson Hole presser basically last week on Friday. Um, and that's right around here. Um, so... I mean, they were they they came out much more hawkish, right? There was a lot of debate about if he was going to accede or if he was basically going to he's going to be Arthur Burns or or Volcker. Uh, he kind of went Volcker and said, "Hey, we're going to raise rates to whatever we need to do." So the dollar has basically broached a twenty-year high, uh, and we've seen Bitcoin and the Nasdaq basically sell off in tandem. And you know, we don't need to really opine and like try to read the tea leaves of the Fed, but I would be curious because uh, there was a lot of talk about is the merge in the driver's seat, fundamentals of the merge based around Ethereum, or is macro and rates really sitting in the driver's seat here? And I would guess, I would guess based on just looking at this chart, they're like perfect inverses of each other. So I guess anything that jumps out to you guys uh, looking at this chart. Looking at this chart, things mm-hmm. don't really jump off the page to me. Like mm-hmm. if you do look at like the larger, if you click on all um, and look at kind of like the past 20 years, like this does become like a really crazy chart that, um, yeah, just click on, click on all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like go go way back. It, you know, it's like it's really not been in this level for almost 22, 23 years. Yeah. Um, and I was actually just thinking about this in the gym today. Like all the inflation people are experiencing, especially in emerging markets, uh, is just so much worse because the dollar is strengthening relative to their local currency. And it's so much better in the US as a result of the converse. Mm. Um there's a you know a, an interesting theory called dollar milkshake theory, which is basically you know the dollar is this wrecking ball, and uh, when it goes up, it tends to break things, and when it goes down, it's kind of this rising tide that lifts all boats. In the same way that interest rates work, and those are both highly correlated. But you know the strength in the dollar, the strength in the ten year, leads me to believe that macro is is probably still in the driver's seat. But you know the stock market today, at least you know, and, and this is you know Thursday, September first is, you know, seems to be dropping potentially on its way to more weakness, but there's been relative strength in crypto, which has been really interesting to see. And I think kind of what you're finding out is like at some level, there is a crypto native bid for these assets that isn't really that affected or or correlated to macro. So, you know, I, I don't think I have like a super unique perspective on on macro. This is certainly not what I'm kind of best at or paid to do, but it's, uh, 
you know, it's relevant because a lot of the world is just like one big trade. Are you easing? Are you loosening? Are you tightening? Are you pausing? Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's all correlated. The the one thing that I'd add is um, just to keep in mind that markets move so much faster than policy, and then policy moves faster than economics. So policy is going to happen before the, the the numbers in CPI or GDP come through, and markets are going to move way faster than policy will. And uh, the Fed, uh, the president of I think it's the Minneapolis Fed, Neil Kachikari, uh, went on Odd Lots earlier this week. And said he was happy with the reaction that the markets had to what was announced and what was talked about on Friday. Um, and, and that, you know, type of hawkish perspective, um, from someone who coined the term inflation is transitory means that, you know, we're probably going to see more stuff happen with Fed policy and, and they're going to probably over hike before we actually see, you know, a real turning of, of the policy perspective. But, um, and I, I saw this on Twitter, uh, last night, but, um, right now, the market is predicting that we hit 4% uh, interest rates in March 2023. And that's currently priced into the market. Uh, and, and so if you think that interest rates are going higher than 4% by March 2023, that would be a change in, in policy from what is already expected to happen. Um, and so markets are already pricing this in. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if basically we see a change in perspective or a change in, in policy or even a change in, in the way that it's being talked about. Uh, and, and that actually has positive yeah. impact on Maybe the market. Maybe let's zoom in um, like to our little corner of the world here. I mean, this is we've got basically a chart of major L1s, right? So we've got... Uh, Cosmos, Ethereum, Polkadot, Bitcoin, uh, Solana, and Avalanche. Um, so, I mean, actually, decently wide dispersion, uh, I would say. Um, but like the big outliers here are uh, Cosmos, you know, outperforming, especially over the course of the last month or so. And we've got uh, Avalanche. <laughs> we've got Avalanche maybe underperforming a little bit. I don't know. I don't know where you guys want to start on either one of those two. Maybe we can start on Avalanche since that's kind of the the big news of the week. Um, Maybe Michael, I'll, I'll tee you up for that one there. <laughs> I, I, I definitely, we, we can save a little bit of extra time for avalanche conversations. Um, I, I think it's hard to look at individual prices um, and perspectives on what that means. But I, I think the, the one thing that is really interesting here is just like ETH versus everything else. Um, you know, the alt layer one um, base layer perspective, it, it seems like kind of across the board, other than obviously, Adam, based on the price chart you're showing, um, but basically all the other alt layer ones are, are having a tougher time than Ethereum is um, price wise. But I, I think that that, you know, obviously has some impact from the merge, but but also just like generally, uh, you're starting to see more gravitation mm -hmm. towards at least layer twos onto Ethereum. And, and that also has an impact yeah, on I Ethereum. Mean, the other thing that stands out to me with this chart is um, if you think about something like ETH, that's been, you know, it was an ICO, I think at like 40 cents, and then it went to, you know, $1,400 in 2017, and then it went down to $86, and then it went back to $4,900 and now back to, you know, $1,600. Like there's been so much price discovery in that asset that, you know, one of the things that we're willing to pay a premium for, um, for assets like, you know, ETH that have just more price discovery, is just the certainty that, you know, in a bear market in, you know, when things get crazy, you know, what level of conviction do the holders of that asset actually have? Or are we going to get sold into in these kind of like long drawn out bear markets? And if you think about kind of the various assets, you know, Bitcoin, you have the four sellers of miners when, you know, the electricity cost to produce a Bitcoin is roughly equal to the market price of Bitcoin today. 
But then all these other all L1s, you have just like the structural selling of people that are unlocking tokens, which are a considerable percentage of a lot of their fully diluted valuations. So the things that surprise me, um, like AVAX on this chart is not super surprising given the the lawsuit and probably people who knew about that before it really dropped. Mm. But Soul is is kind of the one that stands out where you just have this massive unlocking cycle that to me looks a lot like ETH did in 2017 or 2018, where it's just like, Everybody's selling it all at once, relative weakness on the asset that used to be the strongest. Um, and so it just goes to show you kind of that velocity um, and that acceleration that happens in the bear market. It works both ways. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. I mean, it's been it's been an interesting last month for Cosmos. They've attracted some pretty interesting projects. Uh, so DYDX right, is launching their own chain over there. Uh, and then, Mike, I know you wanted to chat about um, Say. Uh, which is a new layer one that's uh, kind of specialized for DeFi. We can get into that because uh, there's some pretty interesting implications for central limit order books there. But yeah, I kind of have the same same take. I mean, I do want to get your guys' perspective on AVAX. Uh, so to set the scene, um, I, was, I was trying to load this picture, but uh, I mean, you can see, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll loop it in later, but like, you know, CZ basically tweeted this out, but, um, you know, there there was a website, you know, you get you just can all find this online, um, but that, that tweeted out kind of these explosive allegations uh, where they had a lawyer on, on video, uh, right? Kyle Roche, that was basically detailing, you know, in his words, um, in his words, how Avalanche employed him as an early, early employee, gave him a whole bunch of equity to basically, you know, to, to paraphrase, direct the ire of the CFTC and the SEC at other projects, you know, to benefit Avalanche relatively uh, to them. And I guess the caveats that I would say is, you know, if you look at some of the other, if you look at some of the other reporting that this website did, it didn't look super fair and, and unbiased. I would say there's definitely a perspective, kind of a pro, uh, ICP Definity uh, type perspective, but I mean, the videos are the videos too. So it didn't look great. Um, I don't know if you guys had a specific take, but CZ basically tweeted this out and, and, and AVAX dropped like 10% basically uh, as soon as he tweeted it. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know if you guys had any specific thoughts or anything that you want to share. First thing that comes to mind is like, whenever people try to do like the fancy footwork, sneaky moves in crypto, mm -hmm. like it rarely ever pans out in their favor <laughs> term yeah. like you know we have so many different anecdotes of like people trying stuff that they probably shouldn't have for like you know trying to get back at competitors or things like that it always kind of blows up in their face and this is an area where you know people are experimenting with software engineering with financial engineering the regulations have yet to been to to have be defined and people can get really hurt if you you know are, are actively suing them if you're actively directing regulatory agencies towards them and so generally, it's just not a cool thing to do. Like, we should all be in this as Web3 stewards and stewards of this new movement. Um, and this feels very PVP. And, you know, the things that don't engender you to open source builders are things like this, um, where you're the gatekeeper, where you're the arbitrator of right versus wrong, where you're doing things that are vindictive. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that this will be the last that we hear of this. You know, regulators find out about things in a lot of the same ways that we do. They read things on the internet. They look at headlines on the Wall Street Journal on various websites. Um, so they're going to see this. And yeah, I mean, for all of the denials that Amin issued, uh, the videos are just awful. And they point to a pretty black and white case. And, and we'll see what happens with it. But yeah, I mean, we shouldn't be encouraging this type of stuff. And we shouldn't just be, you know, taking these denials at face value. So one of the things that I kind of want to double click him on and totally agree with what Van said, I mean, we, we should we should self-regulate our way out of this. Um, but I think that 
that's kind of the only stance that we can take at this point. And, and I feel like the industry has actually been doing a pretty good job of this so far. Like we've gotten rid of, you know, some, some pretty tasty characters over the last few months. Uh, and, and I think, uh, <laughs> it's it, quite a list, it's quite a list. but I think, yeah. you know, it, yeah. it really is like the, the hit list is huge. And, and I think, you know, the, why do you think that is, I guess, is kind of the question that I'm asking. And my like my visceral reaction to my own question is you're dealing with basically religious perspectives because there's money involved. And like if this was just like open source technology and it was like one platform versus another or like one company versus another, I feel like it would be less, less just painful or less. um yeah, less like dogmatic. Um, but because because it is involving money, I feel like that's something different. And it, it kind of goes back to the and I know we're gonna talk about it later, but like Rune's perspective of like the the door is closed. Um and like we've done we we've like already lost in a lot of ways. Um and we can debate that later on on in this conversation. But he's like, Yeah, you know, basically we have financial incentives here and like we just continue to blow ourselves up because of human greed. I, I think I take a different approach actually on this whole avalanche case. Um, this is some. This is not specific to crypto. Like this is something that's been happening since the dawn of time. And like you look at, I had a bunch of friends, like probably similar to you guys, because you guys were like product people in San Francisco back in the day, uh, who were at Uber and Lyft, right? And like Uber had Operation Slog, where they would literally in like twenty what fourteen or fifteen or sixteen in the early days, where they would literally uh, have Uber people who would get credit cards funded by Uber, and then they'd create fake Lyft accounts as drivers, uh, or excuse me, as riders, and then they'd order Lyfts, and then the, they, they would basically no-show the Lyft drivers. So the Lyft drivers would get, get all pissed off with the Lyft, with Lyft, and then they'd go back and start using Uber. So like, there are these backdoor things, and like even like Rockefeller, right? Like back in the days of like standard oils, like so that the regulators didn't come after him, he would basically direct the regulators and be like, here's something that my, that my competitor is doing that's really, really slimy. And this is like, I just, I'll, it's shady. It's not right, but like it is, it's not specific to crypto. It's something that's been happening uh, at these, at the like highest levels of business, I would say forever. I, I just felt like I was watching Dirty Laundry get aired. I just, I just don't think like anyone, you just kind of like when you watch like a, a boyfriend and a girlfriend, like get really hammered and then like fight at a party and you're like, I don't even know whose side I'm on. I just want this to stop. Like, please, for the love of God. I just don't like what I'm seeing here. I didn't, cause like some (laughs) of it didn't stand up to me. Like some of it, you know, this guy, like when I, I didn't believe the way he was portraying it, it was like, he's the one, you know, the marionette, like pulling the strings at the SEC and CFTC. I was like, I don't buy that. I don't think that's how that works, you know? So like that wasn't really standing up to me, but like, I didn't love the response from the, it was just, it was just a weird also just, thing. I mean, I just don't trust this. Whatever. <laughs> I just don't. Very suspect. <laughs> I just don't. That's very suspect. Whatever I'm looking at. So right. just got to flag that. Uh, one, of, one of the interesting angles here is, uh, He's been removed as one of the uh, lawyers on a number of different cases yeah. that are currently ongoing. You know, it, this, the 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 tentacles run deep for Kyle, um, oh, which is Kyle. which is kind of funny. Um, all right, well, let's. I mean, yeah, I kind of think it's in a dirty laundry. If it is true, then yeah, it's obviously goes without saying. It's just a super uncool move and just not becoming for because i think i think one of the things that might be different you know like even mark benioff right like he did all this crazy stuff with the media right when he was building salesforce but it's a little bit different in crypto we're still so early stage and there's a huge focus on community that there might not have been for other 
Like I didn't get the bullshit. I didn't. Bullshit. You know, the, you bullshit. Know the great, I don't get the feeling no, that Rockefeller was no, like, no. "Let me build a community around this oil company." No, no, no. okay. Like let's building. use no, like let's use sales, like you said. You said Salesforce, Benny. <laughs> yeah. Like at the beginning, there was no SaaS industry. There used to be no SaaS industry until Salesforce. Salesforce would literally, Salesforce would literally hire protesters, like fake protesters, and they would go protest outside of. Uh, like like Oracle conferences and stuff. And he have, he'd hire, hire hundreds of people and they were protesters, but really they were just paid for by Benioff. Like this is just, I don't know. It's just, I don't, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not for it. I'm just saying this is like this, not. This like, is how the sausage going. gets made. So, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I do now you're, you're getting I, some I, direct insight into Blockworks' line item uh, OPEX spend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think we, I, I like, you know, I, I don't think last cycle we did a good job of being self-regulating. Like we didn't call out things or at least when people did, it was just drowned out in a sea of people just making money. Mm. And so I don't know if I'm, I'm certainly not in favor of like cancel culture or like, you know, taking Kyle out of a job forever, no. but we should be trying to keep each other honest at, at a bare minimum. Yeah, that yeah, feels like yeah. an okay goal. I agree with that. Um, all right. I'm going to start sharing my screen again. I actually, you know, I want to get into this topic of value accrual because we're going to move on to talk about L2s and specifically Nitro's launch on Arbitrum and uh, some of the activity that's going on there. But uh, I, want, I want you guys to guess, if you guys had to guess um, some of the DeFi majors like Compound, Aave, Uniswap. Let's say uh, last two years of performance relative to ETH. How do you think they did? Say so probably down fifty percent or sixty percent, maybe more. Oh, last two years? Hmm. Uh, la- wait, since this, yeah, yeah, last two years. Let's say since October twenty twenty two, so almost two years. So, uh, October twenty twenty. Wait, since October yeah. 2020, 2020, Yeah, down pretty. Uh, well, what's the price? I would say down probably fifty percent. I think October 2020 is a bad time. Yeah, because that that was post DeFi summer. Uh, that'd be a tough benchmark to hit. Why, um, yeah. I'm 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 gonna say up. Wow, we got pretty big spread so far. We got negative 50 and up. Up what? I, I'd say even, because I think ETH was was pretty high back then, if I recall. But I, I could be off. Yeah, no. I think it's round. I mean, haven't both of them round tripped since October 2020? Essentially, no. I think I think uh, I think DeFi's down. I think uh, like Aave and Comp and Uni are down relative to down relative to ETH. I think ETH was at like 300 or 400 or 500 bucks. It's at like what 1500 today. Aave's probably down. All right, Ooh. all right, make your guess because I shared my screen too quickly. It's down. DeFi's down. DeFi's down relative to ETH. These are the numbers here. It's like not great. It's not. It's not great. So if you're if you're not following, so uh, Ave is the leader. It's down about fifty two percent. Then it's Uniswap at sixty seven. Maker down seventy. Curve seventy one. Comp is down ninety one point eight six percent. It's not great. Comp is down ninety one percent relative to ETH. Yeah, I mean, this is. I mean, the reason I picked this is it's about. I mean, it's two years. It's about even, and this is as far back as it goes on. I'm trading you. So it's the easiest way that I can do it. But if you if you go back and so that's 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 my scientific method. But if you go back, I mean you can look at uh CoinGecko and just look at like charts of uh of like maker denominating ETH. You can go all the way back to 2018 or whatever they launched, and it's like a straight. I mean, it's a straight. I mean, what what the reason this got flagged is um, you know, I saw on on Twitter, you know, maker denominating ETH is like the almost the lowest it's ever been. Um basically. Uh, so basically DeFi as a sector is kind of bottomed out. I think it kind of raises larger questions about value accrual. And it also, I mean, we're going to talk about say as well, but why it's still such a good bet to bet on L1s 
Um, I, actually, I would be curious. I'd be interested to see if this same pattern holds up with uh, like Solana and some of the dApps that are built on there. I have no idea. I don't think I don't think the L1 trade is there anymore. Actually, I know. So I think what happened is the L1 trade happened in uh, like the last bull cycle was like the L1 cycle kicked it off, kicked everything. It was like DeFi summer, and then everything rotated into these L1s and like Solana ripped and then Avalanche. And I think what's happening now is you have all these like the Aptoses and Sueys. Like there's going to be like 40 L1s going into the next cycle. And I think there's going to be people chasing the L1 trade, but the L1 trade is going to get, instead of getting spread out over like near Solana Avalanche, it's going to get spread out over like 40 different L1s and the the trade won't be as intense. Well, but I actually, I actually disagree to a certain extent. Because I, I actually think that if you if you look at anything in crypto right now, what, where is the most value aggregating? And, and this is to Mike's point, it's aggregating the L1s. And if you're raising $5 million for probably, I don't know, let's say like 5, 10, 15% of the tokens, you're, it's a pretty good bet to make to be able to buy well, that. But what L1 raises 5 million bucks right now? That's what Say raised. Yeah. I don't, I don't know much about Say. I don't know. Say, say it's pretty interesting. I don't know. Maybe we should, I'm jumping around a little bit, but maybe we should talk about that. Cause I, I feel like the reason why that might be worth bringing up is it, it made a pretty interesting trade off, uh, especially when it comes to like, there's a big debate, right? Central limit order book versus AMMs, um, in general. But just to give you guys kind of like the rundown for what happened. So this is a new L1. Um, uh, they raised $5 million. It's an L1 blockchain that's optimized for DeFi. So it's not an app specific chain and it's not a generalized l1 blockchain it's kind of this mix in between uh so it raised five million in funding it was led by multi-coin with participation you know round robin of you know kind of blue chips like coinbase ventures delphi digital hudson river trading gsr etc um basically i mean in their in their words here uh so most l1s fall into like a barbell type distribution you've got two extremes so the general purpose chains and that's like eth and solana then you've got app specific chains like what dydx is trying to do and you've also got osmosis in the cosmos ecosystem and basically what the way i understand it the limitation is in a general purpose blockchain like solana even if you have low fees if it's a successful blockchain at all it attracts a whole bunch of other activity outside of just DeFi, right so Maybe on Solana, it was like the NFTs. When you have that congestion in the block space, fees go up, and that naturally disrupts some of the, uh, you know, basically the the DeFi type purposes. Um, and so then you have kind of like these app specific chains, um, which is what DYDX is trying to do on on Cosmos. But then uh, Say takes a little bit of a an in between, where it's actually a not totally general purpose L1. They're, they've got like a built in order matching engine, uh, but actually they're not. They're trying to encourage other, they're trying to make it very easy to spin up central limit order book markets on that chain, right? So it's not like you go to say exchange. They're trying to make it very easy for you to spin up separate markets. Um, I'm sorry, why is this not? You might have just explained it, but middle of the bell curve here. Why is this not Solana? What Solana tried to do? They, Michael's like, it is, baby. It is Solana. Is, I think? mean, I'm just going to. Call it how I see it, which is like, this feels like multi-coin taking another shot on goal. Like I, for like, this was this, this was their blog post for, for, for the Solana investment. Like you can build central limit order books and like spot and derivatives trading on, you can't do all that stuff on chain now, but you can do it on chain. If you can build something that looks like Solana and now it's two years later. And I like, I'm down with say, I'm down with more ones. I just feel like we should say what it is, which is multi-coin taking another shot on goal. Yeah, I mean, don't want to dog Kyle or in too sharp for it. We like those guys. Um, no, I don't think it's a bad thing, by the way. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not yeah, dog, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, like, yeah. my, you know, I'm I'm not like 
for it. I'm not against it. I'm mostly just like, who cares? Like we've been around long enough and, and we see literally like two, 3000 pitches per year. Most of them are not L ones, but like a good chunk of them are. Um, and some of them are L twos and some of them are variations. And like, we've literally heard everything, parachains, app chains, scales via hardware, scales via L two scales via subnets. It's written in JavaScript, whatever, like, who cares? Um, who's actually going to use this thing? How is it going to get distribution? And, you know, the reason why we are so interested in things like ETH and, and you know, Bitcoin to a lesser extent is because they have not only this technology angle, but they have the call option of being money. And that is like the fundamentally mispriced option, which is, you know, that's how these assets get to trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars of scale. And, you know, there's this concept of like the window. Okay. You know, a year ago, a year and a half ago, um, ETH fees were high. Um, the scaling roadmap was far away. The alt L1s were hot on their tail. Like the window was wide open. Flash forward to today, you know, most of the transaction fees on these L2s are, are 10 cents. And it's, you know, really easy to build your own L2 sidechain that transitions into an L2. Like, why would you not just do that, all things considered? And I think the answer is basically, well, the incentives are to become your own L1 because that's like where the, the highest market cap could be. But that window, in our opinion, is is basically closed. Like if, if 4844 gets put in and that's basically this uh, improvement proposal, which lowers the cost of putting call data on chain, like what's the what's the point of doing this other stuff? Um, and like, you know, it's not like, you know, funding round gets announced three months later, the blockchain's out six months later, it's in mainnet. It's like. The funding gets announced a year later. It's like ready for alpha a year later. It's got like tools a year later. You got the community. It's like, that's way far in the future. Um, like if we're all just investing in picks and shovels, nobody's ever going to find gold. And I really would like to see the venture industry specifically move more towards the application layer. And I think that's where it's going. You know, time was whoever had the most technical investors would probably be the best venture firm in crypto. That's what drove outperformance. But I think you're moving in a fundamentally different direction. You have to play more at the app layer. And, you know, funding all L1s right now feels like you're kind of fighting the last war, which is just going to be increasingly less relevant. It's also just we can't have another cycle where we just fund L1s because we're going to have another cycle where, like, there's no, you know, quote unquote adoption that comes. It's just, it's like it's probably not good for your portfolio, but it's also really not good for the space to just keep funding these L1s. The the one caveat that I would give is there is this like intermediate time period right now where a lot of all L1s have been funded. You know, there there's um, all the different modular blockchain examples, uh, but you're you're literally a race at a in a race against time for the scaling of other major uh, blockchains, L1 smart contracts with L2s that have scaling to really scale, and that's that's what EIP. 4844 does. I mean, Nitro just launched yesterday on Arbitrum and I saw where we were talking about it, but like six cents is is the transaction fee. With EIP 4844, yeah, that goes down to subcent layer. And, and and once you have that, you know, it's really going to be hard to compete with the security model of Ethereum, the community of Ethereum, and frankly, the the apps and, and development and tooling that has already been happening on Ethereum for the can last I, six years. Can, can I, can, I know you guys are all in on ETH. Can I push you guys to take the other side of the argument? Sure. Like, um, the other side of the argument is, uh, I, at least I would start with this. I would say um, the intervening year that's about to happen doesn't matter. 
you know, it's going to be kind of like flat to bearish. Um, there's not going to be any blockchains that hit like these hyper adoption moments, like ETH's network effects are not likely to grow. Um, and so, you know, you would kind of draw a line from that to saying, all right, the network effects are relatively weak. We can easily replicate a DeFi uh, ecosystem. NFTs are harder. Like you can't take a, you basically have to like, just like that's a function of time effectively building an NFT ecosystem. Um, and maybe we can peel off like a few games. And if those games hit, you know, instantly we have the biggest blockchain with the most amount of users. And, you know, I think the thing that's most exciting about say, you know, if I, if I were the people who invested in it, it would probably be the valuation. You know, it's a cheap call option on all of that happening. And at a certain price, you know, it is price right to happen. Um, but, you know, you have to think probabilistically as an investor. And that's why, you know, this, this does make sense in some contexts, but yeah. I'd also add uh, that the major difference between something that you're constructing from the ground up now versus something that's been around since 2015 is frankly just tech debt. The amount of time and energy spent actually like trying to pull off a major change like the merge that you know is, is supposedly going to happen in the next two weeks is just orders of attitude harder based on the, the stuff that you have to go through to get it to the point that it is now with it also being live and at the scale that it is today and, and has been for the last few years. So there isn't, there is a really strong argument to be made around like just being able to move faster because you don't have that. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I mean, that, the, the, that the, is the a, thing a totally that fair is point. not available to people who make this argument anymore that used to be was like when Solana came out, it was like, there's new types of applications that can be built on Solana that cannot be built on Ethereum. And that was like, you know, as some, as people who hold ETH, like that was like, oh shit, like this this could run away from us pretty quickly. Um, but again, it comes back to that concept of the window and the window for that type of differentiation is basically over. And so what is it now? Um, that's a little bit harder of a question to answer now versus a year ago. I, I guess my, my question, because the, Jason, go back all the way to what you said, like, is this, is say just another Solana? I mean, the difference there is that Solana is a completely permissionless general purpose blockchain. So you have other applications that aren't necessarily DeFi, whereas say is optimized for, it's optimized for DeFi applications, right? So you don't get a lot of that clogging. They also have, I mean, they've done, they've, they've, they've built some pretty interesting stuff in there. Like they've, they've kind of solved the front running issue of MEV, like the transactions per second that they have. It's something like 7,300. Uh, transactions per second versus DYDX is 500. So they've done, I mean, they've made some, you know, I, I think the, I, if I had to strongly end the argument for that as well, I'd say like a, a lot of the unlocks, like, you know, how they come in cost reductions, you know, in, in other industries like biotech, like the cost of sequencing a genome went from like, I forget some enormous amount. It took like multiple years and now you can do it for like 500 bucks. So that's a huge unlock. I think, I think the, you know, if you optimize entirely for speed and you make some trade-offs, but you optimize for speed, then you get a whole bunch of unlocks that are hard to understand now. Like that's the whole business model behind high frequency trading is you have to order like, I, sorry, Michael, you look like you're going to say something. What's going on? Well, I was going to ask the question though, like, yeah, sequencing the genome is sequencing the genome. And if you have the ability to do that at an orders of magnitude lower cost, it's hugely valuable. Implicit in the question though, in this context is the question, does a central limit order book maintain its position as the most preferred way of trading? Or is it something like an AMM or, or frankly, something new that hasn't existed yet, but is now enabled by a blockchain that is the dominant way that we trade for crypto? And I mean, look at the historic, uh, the traditional financial industry. The dominant trading pattern is options, 
But think of options relative to perps when it comes to crypto. And we do have new models, new trading uh, methodologies that are just different for this industry. So one of the questions that I, I kind of maybe pose to the entire group is like, is the central limit order book something that we're going to continue to have at the same volume that we've, we've had in traditional markets? I, it's, it's hard for me to answer that. Apparently, like the volume of uh, like high frequency traders versus, you know, regular organic flow is something like 25 times to one. Or something like that. So the business model of exchanges basically exists around, you know, it's a central limit order book they cater to and they allow those high frequency traders like to basically trade more cheaply in exchange for providing liquidity. I don't know if that's the only model, but I think you need to come up with something like liquidity is good for markets in general. So I think if you're going to say, all right, we don't need to do it with a central limit order book anymore. Instead, it's going to be an AM, maybe concentrated liquidity on the AMM space. Like Uni V3 is pretty interesting, frankly. But I, I mean, I, I think you need to come up with something that replaces that. Is the, is the only thing I say, but I'm not, you know, bell curve guy. I'm not, I'm not sure <laughs> what that is exactly. The two questions that I, I like ask when you ask that question to me are basically um, like, what's the differentiated functionality of an AMM versus an order book? And I think like AMMs have great product market fit for the long tail of assets. Like you can spin it up, especially uni V2, provide liquidity, you know, Bob's your uncle, like it's trading, it's live, it's, it's whatever. Like that's a great use case that literally is not available for central limit order books. Um, and for the, the things that have a little bit more scale, like Uni V3, um, it's challenging to be an LP there. We've done a lot of analysis, which suggests like you're basically break even in permanent loss versus fees, if not negative. But like, that's a great way that you can do sizable block trades in the same way as a central limit order book and get about the same execution. Um, mm. And then I think about like, okay, is it better on price? And AMMs are, are, you know, probably not quite as good on price, but looking back at the historicals, like everything that we know about crypto and retail interacting with crypto would suggest that they are very fee insensitive. That is not the thing that matters the most to them. You know, they're willing to pay 2% for NFTs. So, you know, at the highest level of scale, at like the Binance level where you're doing like tens or, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of volume, you know, per day, per month, whatever, um, you probably do need a central limit order book as that anchor. But like for the rest of the ecosystem, it, it, to me, it's like, who cares? Like Serum is great, but like, who cares? Like who uses it? You know, do people want to use the Orca decks instead? Like all of the stepping people do, you know? Who yeah. knows? If I had that, yeah. If why I, do, I, why I do they coming. use Orca? It's a good question. I don't know. I don't know either. Well, yeah. What's up, Yana? Well, because they're stepping people and they rebranded the right. Oh yeah, I think they might have started their own decks too. So, so maybe maybe that's no longer the case. Uh, if I, I know, I was kind of ragging on saying we can move on from saying in a second, but like if I if this was a non crypto company, I actually probably might like it because I'm just I'm I'm going to try to play devil's advocate to what I'm saying, which is um, and try to take the other side of the argument. If there was like a cloud provider that came into the market and they were like, all right, we're going to go head to head with Google. Amazon and Microsoft. I was like, great. Who's your, who are your early customers you're going to target? Who are you going after? And they're like, oh, everyone. SaaS companies, gaming, finance. I'd be like, all right, well, there's no way you're winning. There's, there, you have no chance. And I think what Say is doing is they're like, all that other stuff, like other people can go win it. But like, and like NFTs, like go do that somewhere else. And, and honestly, like it's probably pretty smart. Like a poorly designed NFT mint uh, can consume all the block space and kind of ruin DeFi for a couple of days on, on a blockchain. And so, yeah, that's probably the counter argument is like hyper-focused companies and founders usually do win. That's yeah. true. I'm also very yeah. bullish yeah. on poorly designed NFT mints because they just burn a lot. Of <laughs> so 
Burn, baby, burn. Uh, all right, I, I, let's move on because I want to. I had this. I had this uh, up here, and we weren't even looking at. It. But I want. I want to get your guys' uh, take on Arbitrum, maybe in, in in relation to Optimism as well. So Nitro got rolled out, which is basically an enormous improvement. I guess actually we should start with Odyssey, which was Odyssey. I think was a pretty interesting. Uh, initiative that was rolled out by Arbitrum. It was basically, like to paraphrase, it was essentially a scavenger hunt that Arbitrum was basically, it was trying to put its users through. Say, hey, like, uh, there are going to be these 56, you know, the top apps uh, that are going to be grouped in this thing. And if you, you like, you should go, like, use all of these different things, right? Like decentralized exchanges and whatever. Um, and you you essentially have the ability to earn these NFTs. Um, so this was rolled out in June. It was live for about a week. Uh, then they had to pause it because the fees that Optim, like, to transact on Optimism or on Arbitrum were actually higher than Ethereum. So they basically, they had this big announcement, we're going to pause, um, and you can actually see it. I'll share my screen again in the spikes on this chart. Um, but they paused Odyssey and, uh, what they, they just rolled out Nitro, which is an enormous increase in terms of transaction throughput. So it's like six to 10 times increased it by an, almost a full order of magnitude. Um, and what they're, it looks like, I mean, they've kind of moved in lockstep here, but uh, it looks like they're starting to, to win, right? So transactions per day is flipped, uh, transacting addresses per day is flipped between Arbitrum and Optimism. I'm curious if you guys have, and some of the projects as well, like GMX is kind of the standout, right, on, on Arbitrum. I'm curious if you guys have any thoughts on just Arbitrum versus Optimism in general, or just, I guess, the Arbitrum ecosystem. I will just say, like, Vance and Michael are going to have much better takes on this than I do. But, like, I think when you look at these charts today, in two years, when you look, like you're saying like, oh, the transactions flipped. When you look at these charts in two years, these are going to be like the smallest little blips on the chart. So like, I actually don't, it's going to, optimism will probably flip back and overtake Arbitrum at some point. Then it'll flip back, then it'll flip back. And these will just be like, we're at 0.0001% of the transactions that will end up happening on L2. So like, I know what you're Thank getting you. at. I just Thank wouldn't spend this. too much time on this. Yeah. Yes. I, that was literally going to be my first reaction is it feels like we zoomed into like the 2013 bubble and crash on the price chart. And it'd be nice to zoom out a couple of years and be able to see where we actually are. I mean, we, we were talking about it earlier, but EIP 144844 is going to be something that 10 to 100x is the amount of cost or decreases the amount of cost for call data on L1. Assuming that goes in, assuming it, it works the way that it is supposed to work, uh, I mean, this this stuff here is is kind of moot. But I also agree, I think this is just going to be a dogfight. And, you know, you, you can literally see it in the transaction fees or, or the, the transacting addresses. It's just going to bounce back and forth. The thing that will be the difference maker, though, is where applications aggregate. So you've got you know certain applications that are optimism only. You've got others that are Arbitrum only. Do you have the ability to have cross Arbitrum optimism and have that be a seamless experience? If that's the case, it's going to be really you know who's who. Um, the other angle that I think is really interesting as well is is there going to be a centralized uh, bridge to be able to get from L1 to L2? Right now, if you pull your assets off of uh, and I, I don't know Arbitrum, I, we. I've done it personally recently on Optimism. It still takes seven days. You're waiting seven days to be able to pull assets off of Optimism. If you can have that be something that is you know, a centralized bridge and there's just market makers that can arb that away and get you assets immediately or you can trust the process, that is a, a great thing. But for seven days, you're, you're basically waiting for things to disappear and then come back. That's a, it's, a, it's a weird feeling yeah, I mean, for a blockchain. Do you guys like when we were looking at Gem versus Genie back in the day, I remember like all the, the Twitter peanut gallery was like, 
oh man, it's over. Like Jem is like way in the lead. Like they're blowing him out. And like, you know, it, it looked that way if you, you know, pulled up Dune. But then if you dug into the amount of users, it was like, you know, Jem had like 60 more users than, than Genie and they had like a hundred total combined. Um, and so like, yeah, I mean, CT to your point, Jason, kind of like tries to call everything early. Um, I think my unique perspectives on this are the seven day withdrawal window makes these things kind of like one way bridges, like getting yourself off of these, these chains is, is very hard and we've done it, but um, it kind of makes the nature of them one directional. And, you know, it's just going to be this thing that sucks in a ton of users and they, and they don't really leave. And the way I think about ethel one and the continuing value accrual there is like number one, um, like DeFi and NFTs are extraordinarily sticky for ethel one whales. And that's kind of like where, you know, the, the three to 4k ETH fees per day are going to come from in the next six or 12 months. That's like, that's what we're guessing. Um, but number two, you know, now that we understand, uh, you know, at some sort of scale, what the cost dynamics for these, you know, blockchains are, um, we can understand like what's valuable about this emerging kind of thesis of like the modular blockchain stack. And so if you look at, you know, say Arbitrum transactions are a dollar each, I'm, I'm paraphrasing uh, Polina, who's a great Twitter follow if you don't follow him, um, about 30 or about 55% are just like, you know, paying for Arbitrum fees of that dollar. So 55 cents about 40 cents are for uh, paying for data availability and posting call data to L1. And then 1% is just paying for, or like a very small percentage of that dollars is actually for paying for settlement on L1. And so like, you're actually starting to understand like what is valuable? What are people willing to pay for? Is it the settlement layer? Is it the data availability? Like, what is it exactly? And that's very interesting to me because I think like eventually we're going to have to come to some sort of consensus as to like, all right, what is the minimum that these L2s can pay these L1s and still claim like to be affiliated with the Ethereum community to have this credible decentralization? Because you're always going to have this push and pull between people who are holding, you know, Arbitrum or Optimism tokens who wants the value of accrual to flow to that versus the people who want to, you know, continue paying relatively high amounts for, for settlement and data availability on the L1. Um, so it's interesting to get this early kind of feedback on, on exactly what that value accrual dynamic is and, and could, could potentially be. I think it's kind of interesting to look at. I mean, the big difference, I got, I point taken, we are zooming in on a really small period of time, but the big difference I would say right now in between, it's just like their acquisition strategy because Optimism actually has a token and they're doling out incentives like left, right, and center, which is why you see those like enormous spikes. Whereas Arbitrum has kind of a different strategy where they're, I mean, I guess the NFTs are an incentive as well. But really, I mean, the, the real reason why Odyssey was so popular was this, there was the idea of incentives in the future, like potential airdrops, right, of the Arbitrum token. Everyone's basically taking it as a given. So I do think it's, I mean, it's kind of interesting just looking at, I mean, people are trying out new strategies, you know, for like go to market for like how to migrate users from ETH to this L2 versus the other L2. It's kind of interesting. I, I, I don't know why, but I just got really uh, uh, strong Rob Hanneman vibes. Rob Hanneman. Of free revenue, pure play. Never, never, uh, yeah, uh, never get revenue. Russ Hanneman, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> a a, a pre-token pre token, pure That's play. That's the dream. <laughs> Value of having a token, you can get 90% of that by just telling people like you're going to have one in the in the future or we'll airdrop. You will have it's one. like you don't, yeah. Yeah. Token you don't need to actually use it. You, yeah. know, you just need to tell people you have it. 
So basically, you're like dangling the meat in front of the dog, basically, yeah, hoping that the dog jumps. Yeah, honestly, yeah, I, I have heard that it's uh, like uh, subscribers of Bell Curve could get a token. So if you're listening, <laughs> tap that little subscribe. <laughs> nice, yeah. nice. I, I, I mean, I, I think the biggest, uh, like, token aside, I, I think the biggest thing that we're going to see and you know, like summing up this whole L2 discussion or, or frankly, even just like execution discussion where people are transacting or choosing to use the applications, it all comes down to price. And if you have lower prices, not only is it just uh, easier to use, like obviously less expensive, but it opens the aperture lens of what applications actually can be built on these chains. And one of the interesting things that Vance and I talked about a lot in, I think it was like 2020, 2021, was basically you know, if if you have a 10x decrease in fees, what do you think happens to the revenue that's flowing through, you know, like price times quantity? It actually increases because you have more transactions at lower cost than you would, you know, if you had higher costs. And, and so I think as we see these decreases of, you know, 10x, like I think we saw with Nitro or whatever it is, 6x, uh, you're going to see more activity aggregate there just yeah, because the, the fact the other that thing I would say, it. going back to the say discussion, like what would be the counter argument to, you know, being uh, bearish? So you'd be bullish on say in this, this instance, I think one of them would be, yeah, cool. You fixed the scaling problem for the 20,000 users that are on Arbitrum and Optimism today. But like the second that you have a popular game with 10 million users, you're gonna be right back in the bucket of like, okay, you didn't actually scale this. Um, and like, that's kind of to Michael's point of like, you know, when if fees decrease, will people fill up that block space? Like the people we're filling, the people we're opening up block space for are like game developers and like people who have millions and millions of users. And frankly, like we still have not tested that level of usage on any blockchain consistently, I would say. ETH is around 500K daily active users per day. Most of the major blockchains are, are you know, half that, two thirds of that. Hmm. Um, all right, I, I wanna move on to uh, Maker. Uh, I think this is gonna be kind of a meaty discussion, frankly. Uh, so Rune's been publishing like multiple different, I guess, iterations of his version of Endgame. Um, and he just came out with a pretty recent post, but I guess to sum everything up, I mean, there was a lot of attention that got paid to the OFAC sanctions, the treasury sanctions, um, on different smart contract addresses. Uh, so tornado cash kind of got shot down and then rune in the discord for, for maker said something to the effect of maybe we should just YOLO into ETH and, you know, disregard the peg, which he, which he kind of walked back, but now is like kind of addressing more seriously and like laying out a very specific vision for what he thinks the end game is for, for maker. So we'll link the whole thing in the show notes here, but basically to sum, I'm, you know, to sum everything up from the TLDR that he posted, the, you know, the title of the proposal is the path of compliance and path of decentralization when maker has no choice, but to abandon the peg. Um, you know, he kind of describes it in like three different phases, right? So financial regulation has trended towards a post 9-11 paradigm, either of you're with us or you're against us with the eventual zero tolerance for anything that doesn't give full, you know, surveillance power essentially over, um, you know, any, any sort of financial infrastructure in general. DeFi has kind of failed to prove real value and demonstrate real value to, let's say, the masses, <laughs> right? So obviously we got some sort of negative PR, to put it lightly, with massive crashes around Terra and Celsius, even though Celsius wasn't wasn't DeFi. Um, and I think, you know, and actually, Jason, and I, we just did an interview with Kane, and he, he did say that a lot of the, even like the founder class in DeFi was like kind of taken aback. Uh, they didn't really expect this, this severe of a crackdown at, at this period of time. So I think the whole community sort of reeling with what to do. 
Um, and the big, the big challenge for a maker is that die, it can't become blacklistable. Uh, so they basically, basically maker doesn't even have the option of being compliant. So, you know, the, the solution that, that Rune is outlining here is to limit the attack service by limiting the amount of RWA, which is real world asset exposure that they have. Um, and he's kind of freely admitting that the likely outcome of this would be, you know, in his exact words, to cause DAI to free float away from USD at stable, predictable rate that feels like negative interest rates. And basically, this end game plan that he's outlined has two effective tools to deal with this, MetaDAOs and protocol-owned vault, which is crypto speak for balance sheet. I um, There's like so much to unpack here. I actually tried to read the full thing. and I felt like I was reading Chinese, uh, you know, like 45 minutes in. I was like, dude, is this, is this the same language? What, what are your, I have, I have opinions on this, um, especially because I think there's a fundamental misalignment at the top of what maker even really is, but like what, what's oh, your, yeah, that's what I was going to say, Mike, yeah. like, I think when you talk about the end, this is the second iterate or like, honestly, like there are, there've been many iterations of the end game. The end game didn't like now it's all about real world assets and like censorship and like free floating die. But really the end game plan started as just a conversation about like how to structure what maker DAO really is and like you could use the word governance as like the all encompassing word, but it's really not that like right now, like maker is just this hodgepodge of like core units that are just like, it's so it's like very messy. What he, if you look at the end game plan, like he uses this image of Google or really alphabet, right. Where it's like, okay, you have, you have these, like what he's trying to, in his words, he's like, I want to transform maker from this like unclear structure into something where every aspect of maker is very well documented, where people have like KPIs and goals. And like, if you look at Google, it's like Alphabet owns like Google X, Sidewalk Labs, Google Ventures, Fiber, Google, Google Capital, Nest. Uh, inside one of those is Google and Google owns Android and Maps and ads and search and YouTube. And then within YouTube, you have like YouTube kids and then you have like the main YouTube. And like each each team has very strong KPIs and they have like a budget. And that's, I think, where all this came from, uh, which makes sense. Like if you, again, like trying to not think about this in crypto speak and like RWAs and PSMs and DAI and like D3Ms, like if you just think about this is a found, this is a founder being like, holy shit, my startup just went from 10 people to like 200 people. Uh, it's so chaotic. I'm trying to like wrangle this in. That's what I'm seeing is a founder who's like, whoa, my, my startup just got really big. I need to think about organizational structure. That's a, it's an interesting take. I mean, my, my like reading of the tea leaves and I don't disagree with that because I don't think that they're mutually exclusive, but my, my take here is um, just let, let's roll back the tape of what maker is, which is the first DeFi protocol and die is the first decentralized decentralized stablecoin to hit scale. Let's say it may not be the first, but it's the one first one to hit scale and where you got to real world assets which felt like an about face for the entire direction of the protocol was what happened following March 2020 crash, where you needed to find stability, you needed to find new asset collateral to be able to add to the to the ecosystem. And so that's where, where you had the first vote to add USDC as one of these collateral types that you could put into, into Maker, because you had to be able to have that to be able to stabilize DAI following the crash and the outage and everything that happened you know, during that period of time. And now you you have a continuation of that strategy where you have you know a hundred million dollar uh, off chain loan uh, to the bank and I, I can't remember the name but you know that that's another real world asset that is the first of its kind but also that happened very recently and it's, it's not like that you know was something that happened a year ago and now you have a complete 
additional about face back to the original thesis of let's be fully decentralized, fully on chain. I think, you know, as he described in the post, his hands are tied in a lot of ways. So it does make sense to move in this direction at this point. But it's been a lot of whipsawing back and forth. I I think, you know, it, maybe maybe it's a realization of like this startup, this company that we're running, this organization is massive and need to have more structure to it. But it's also it, it also just feels very yeah, um, like, unplanned. You know, back in the day, uh, Maker owned a uh, exchange called Oasis that owned a broker dealer license. Um, you know, Rune was going on CNBC as the CEO of Maker. Um, you know, in a collared shirt. I remember that DevCon Osaka speech Michael he gave uh, when he was like, you know, like we're going to tradfi all this stuff. Um, and so it is like a really different perspective and. Um, I think beyond like the direction that DAI goes, just for the record, like I, I very much disagree with Rune about like DeFi providing no value, the window being closed for these things to be regulated institutions, um, you know, basically all of that stuff. Like we've only started engaging with regulators and legislators over the past year. And for the most part, you know, there's been definitely some people who push back, but there's a lot of people who are in our corner. And I think we're just waiting for a time where, you know, the stars are aligned with the right administration, with the right, you know, balance of Congress to actually get something done. And, and you know, Michael and I spent a lot of time helping push that forward. And so, like, I don't think it's time to just, like, roll over and die and just be like, okay, it's only going to be, you know, decentralized protocols from here on out. And, like, we're all going to be anon devs. Like, that's very much not the feature that I see for this asset class. And, and Michael shares that as well. Um in terms of, you know, the the paths that these DeFi protocols take forward, like call it the OGs or whatever, um, I think one path is, you know, going into the window that Rune says is now closed or or at least waiting for that open that window to reopen. And I think it's more of like a reopening concept where like we're certainly not in the window where that can happen today. Like if, if Maker walked into the SEC and, and wanted to register with them, I just don't know how that would happen. But in the future, I think there is the potential for a legislative framework for that to very much be a possibility. But that's probably two or three years away. And so, like, if you're playing for that regulated window to open, you're playing for some date that's a little bit further in the future, and you need to be aligned with that. And, you know, places like Uniswap, you know, places that are also in the U.S. that are in DeFi, like, they're very much going down that path. And I think that will be a fruitful one. For the people who don't want to do that, um, who are probably more international in terms of their basis, uh, you know, in the countries they're located in, maybe there is, maybe there isn't a way to register. Maybe it doesn't even matter particularly. Um, but I think a lot of the paths that they take, these international DeFi OG protocols, will be kind of like this fully crypto native version of what they're doing. Uh, that's just reliant on the endogenous growth of crypto. Like if Maker gets a bunch of USDC in their vaults and they really own it and they start paying down the debt of the vault owners and ETH starts mooning, like that's going to be a very, very, very powerful protocol. And they have the potential to draw in a lot of ETH. And so like you're just betting on the endogenous growth of ETH uh, and the desire for truly permissionless systems, which, you know, is lumpy, but it's very important. Um, yeah, the last kind of unique perspective I think I have on this is like, if you really dig into the economics and the mechanisms of how this proposal works, it's kind of like a DeFi summer style playbook. It's like, Yep, we're going to depeg. We're going to like get a bunch of money in the vaults. We're going to go off and yield farm with it. We're going to go pay off people's debts with that. It's like, okay, like this is kind of like uh, almost like Alchemex in a way. And uh, I think that's cool. And I think it's definitely a departure from like the maker that we know where it's like Rune in a collared shirt on CNBC, 
maker kind of just like not doing anything for like a year, two years. Uh, like it, like if you play back the tape on DeFi Summer last time, they missed that. Like they were not a part of that cohort. And so, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it comes down to what does your team want to do and what are they good at? And for a loosely affiliated group of contributors that are not based in the US that want to run this like crypto anarchist playbook, it seems like kind of only the, the only direction you can go in time. Like Rune at the, at the beginning of his post says that like, the earliest this could happen is three years. So this is them getting kind of, you know, in their, you know, ready, set, go stance. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's an awesome discussion and, and it leaves a lot for other DeFi founders to consider. I, 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 I agree with parts of that. I think, um, I think the one thing that I would say is like the product in my vision of Maker is, a, is something that is supposed to be a dollar. Right. You're supposed to look at this and be like everything that Maker is, in, is doing is in service of creating something that is a dollar and it is at least of stable value. So it kind of like as me, if, if, if let me because I, I do think it's cool to experiment with new economic models and like, hey, could we like yield farm some of this and give rewards back? But the way that I would think about it, if I had to denominate my entire life in Maker, all these assets that I have, all my wealth is denominated in 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 die now instead of U.S. dollars. I would kind of have the perspective of like, yeah, back that shit up with something real, you know, like, uh, you know, probably back that up, probably don't do any of that stuff, actually, um, probably just put dollars in there. And I'm not, and I'm not, I'm not saying that the, cause I, I see the problem with the real world asset as well. Um, actually, Jason, maybe to carry your analogy of being a founder a little bit further, if I was Rune, I think I'm not Rune, obviously, but I guess if I was sitting in his seat and I like deeply believed in the ethos that I believe that he has, right, which is trying to create a decentralized stablecoin that's separate from real world assets. But then you're also like, he ran up against the limits of where he was in time, right, which was that there wasn't enough demand to mint die against ETH. So he had to, in order to grow the protocol and have it survive, he needed to find other collateral, another source of collateral. And it's like, this is where my ideology and what I want to build runs up the rubber meets the road in terms of what options I have as a founder and what I have to do. And I kind of think that he made the only choice that he could at that moment in time. And this is like where like a butterfly flaps its wings. And maybe if he had been doing it five years later and there was more solid collateral, like ETH was an order of magnitude larger, even Bitcoin or other crypto assets, he had more options, then he could have taken a different path. But I kind of I don't think I don't I don't think Rune wants to depeg. I I don't think that he wants to depeg. I don't think that he wants to I think he is trying to like if you go in the maker discord and you spend like a lot of time in the maker discord and you're on the forums like there is a core group the core group of people who hang out in there are very like maker needs to be self-sustaining maker can't have real world assets maker like cannot get censored and so you have to appeal to that group so what he did i think what he just did in this thing earlier this week was very smart he said for three years basically do get Basically, we want to accumulate like max ETH, he called it. And we can do that by getting unlimited real world asset exposure. Then he said, we can keep the peg for three years, but we can go longer if there's no authoritarian threat. Uh, and then he said, we can delay the free float of collateral if it were at least 75% decentralized. He's putting in all these things that are like, yeah, yeah, we're going to free float, but like we won't free float if this. And like d- definitely the plan becomes censorship resistant, but like we don't need to if they're not coming after us. So like, I don't think he wants... To- you never want to take the harder path you as a founder, like building a company is hard enough. Like you want to take yeah. the easier route. So like, I think he's trying to appeal to the core group of his, of like basically employees uh, who are, you know, want something, but he's like, I, I don't know. I just, I don't think he's actually, 
I think that he wants this to be, I think he wants real world assets. And I also think that he's smart enough to know that if you get a shit ton of real world assets, Maker is not like Tornado Cash. Like they censored Tornado Cash because like 30 or 40% of transactions were from like North Korea or some shit like that. Like if you get, if your real world, if your collateral is from like Huntington Valley, Valley Bank, and then maybe in two years from like BlackRock, the regulators aren't coming after you. They're working with you. Uh, if BlackRock has put their stamp of approval on you. Uh, and I, and I, I would assume Rune is smart enough to, to understand that. So th- then this begs the question, where does the rest of OG DeFi go? Does it move in the direction of permissionless or does it move more permissioned? Or do you have to kind of float between the two to get to this end state of maybe both? It goes offshore with VPNs. I, I think that... I don't know I, I think that's that. one possible. I think like... The broader thing that Maker is trying to figure out is like, what is its self-sustaining economic model? And, you know, unless you have that at scale um, with the product that you're currently offering, which like Maker, frankly, like it has some, but it doesn't have a ton of cash flow from just the interest rates they charge. um, You need something else. And like, that's basically what he's saying is like, we got this thing. It's like generating some cash, like not enough to cover everyone's expenses and like we also have this threat of like the U.S. government nuking us. Um, if we just got a bunch of ETH and we yield farmed with it and we like did all this stuff and like made the system more economically self-sustaining because then we have assets we could earn yield on, like that's what makes a full business that really can't be taken down and can pay expenses every year. And you know if you look at Maker, they're the most advantaged at the lending platforms because they have their own stablecoin. Their cost of capital is the lowest. They can give people loans at a moment's notice unlike Aave or Compound, which actually needs to source the USDC and then lend it out. And so for me, this kind of let, begs the question to the other, other lending protocols. It's like, what are you guys going to do? Um, and Aave is moving in this direction. Mm-hmm. You know, they're issuing their own stable coin. Um, that'll lower, lower their cost of capital. But like, is that enough to build a large self-sustaining business that can not only cover costs, but like produce a 10 or 20 or $30 billion market cap outcome, which is at the found, what the founders are shooting for? And so if I'm Aave, I'm thinking about, yeah. all right, do I need to staple something else onto my business model where I own the assets and I lend them out and I give that assets back to the Aave token holders? Um, compound, same thing. Uh, and so like for me, this is like a very lending specific question around the business models. For things like derivatives um, and, and just you know spot AMMs in general, I think it's more like derivatives, you only need like 30 large customers to make your exchange really work and profitable at scale. For AMMs, it's more of a question of like what your penetration rate is of the market. But Uniswap, if the fee switch was turned on, that token would be probably much larger. Um, and so like it's more of a question of the business models of these places than it is any like, you know, to, to Yana's point, like, is this really about the US government trying to nuke them or is this about their business model not being quite as attractive as people thought? And I think it might be the latter. I have a question for you guys, uh, based on like when we were looking at those relative valuations, like compound versus Aave. So Aave's done, you know, relatively better than compound over the course of the last, let's say two years. Do you think, do you attribute any percentage of that to Aave being based internationally and Rob yes. living in the US? Yeah. Absolutely. I, I think, you know, what this comes down to and what we're kind of implicitly saying here is your your hands are are somewhat tied if you're based in the U.S. and working within the confines of regulation. You just can't move as fast. You know, it's either an approval basis where you have to ask for, for permission to do a lot of different things or you just know that things are going to be out of bounds if you're based in the U.S., whereas in other jurisdictions, the rules are different. And that's just a, a fact of life. 
And you know, to Yana's point about this whole thing, DeFi moving uh, out of the country and using VPNs, I think that that's one path. I think that there will be a lot of that. I, I also think that there will be a lot of DeFi that looks like public permission DeFi, where some of these things will move in the direction of regulation, whatever the time period is to to enable that i don't know uh, you know we as van said earlier we started engaging regulators basically in the last 12 months but over over the course of let's say years which is the development cycle for a lot of these things it will happen where you'll you'll have you know broker dealers that are on chain you'll have you know the ability to invoice factor uh, accounts receivable in you know non defi non crypto uh, invoices like that that stuff will live on chain eventually and so i think we're going to see two divergent paths and that's Kind of yeah. what Rune is getting at here, I think, is that he's basically calling like we're at the fork. I, I also agree. I don't think we're at the fork yet. It's not It's not a binary right now. I think you're going to have some that move in one direction and others that move in the, in the opposite direction. But you can also kind of live in both worlds still. And and the window is definitely not closed. I think I'm saying, um, yeah, I, I'll just say, like I said, oh, 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 moves offshore, it's VPN. Like I don't actually think all of it does that. I think uh, I really do yeah. think that hopefully the regulators and policymakers start to understand this stuff. And like the innovation I'm hopeful and capital and the founders can stay in the U S but I think uh, yeah. a lot of it, that, that is why the regulation is important. So go ahead. Yeah, no, you're, you're going to be a father in five months. Would you advocate for your <laughs> child <laughs> to VPN and if he was a founder, I was waiting for you to bring up some kid <laughs> joke on this. I was like, Anna's getting married wow. in three weeks, <laughs> so uh, we're, we're all we're all we're all taking uh, <laughs> we're all taking over and unders on when the first kid is going to be here. I've got five months. Reddit out here. Next <laughs> cycle. My group chats. I need <laughs> every group oh. chat because it's a uh, all right, we've got, we've got on, moving on. All right, moving on, moving on. Um, all right, got one more thing that I want to get your guys' opinion on uh, before we move on to memes, um, which is this Ave proposal, which is temporary ETH uh, pause on ETH borrowing. So, simple summary. Again, we'll link this in the show notes, but it's a proposal to pause ETH borrowing in the period leading up to the ETH merge. Uh, in addition, the uh, da, 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 basically ahead of the merge, Ave protocol faces the risk of high utilization in the ETH market. Temporarily pausing ETH borrowing will mitigate the risk of high utilization. Um, and basically, so basically it, that it, you know, when you have an enormous amount of people that want to borrow ETH, right, utilization goes up and then there's difficulty in terms of managing collateral and, and liquidations. Um, so I, I guess my, you know, when I'm looking at this reading is I think it's like a very fair move and it's an order of magnitude better, like that this is being done out in the open and people are voting on it. But I also do remember like when Robin Hood kind of like changed the rules um, on everything, there was like this whole uproar of like, you guys are changing rules on things and everything like that. But maybe, maybe the difference is just that this is done in a super transparent way and, you know, with, with good rationale. I don't know what you guys think. I, I mean, obviously this is, this is one of the, one of the core advantages of DeFi, the transparency, but isn't this just an ETH proof of work, you know, thing? Isn't this just like a mitigation of people trying to borrow a bunch of ETH so they can have it on chain to be able to get the snapshot? I, I mean, that's, that that's my read on this, which I think is fair, and and like we should be pausing that. I I also know that there are other protocols, at, at least synthetics, I know, uh, as well as Coinbase, who are going to be pausing ETH uh, and ERC twenty transactions um, and movements ahead of the like a couple hours before and a couple hour hours after. I think that has to do more with like let's just batten down the hatches and and ride this merge out. Uh, but I, I think this one in particular, borrowing ETH is is a move against ETH W. Yeah. Most likely. Um, all right, guys. Um, I know we're winding down here. Anyone have any suggestions for tweet of the week, meme of the week? Because I've got a couple. Man, 
<laughs> we wait. We didn't talk about oh, yeah. Sailor at all. Actually, uh, yeah. I, I was about to say we're missing. We're missing one big <laughs> topic. Is that the lead into Sailor or Vitalik's? Uh, Vitalik, <laughs> he's back in a weapon. What an L week for for Bitcoin. We got Hero oh, Sailor downtown. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what a win for ETH. But like, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't really know what there is on the tax evasion thing. I mean, it seems like he wasn't paying the taxes, income tax in DC, even though he was supposedly living there. But he also had these videos being like, I'll never pay my taxes. Like, I'll fake a boating accident. Like, <laughs> cool. <can't> that, <laughs> Let's see how that works. <laughs> I mean, yeah, just like all of the super cyclers have been, you know, basically taken out and shot. And it's not surprising to see that Sailor's not only been kind of like, I don't know if he was forced out of MicroStrategy, but like certainly his role has become diminished. Um, and then this stuff, basically all those insane podcasts that he did over the past two years. Like, side note, my favorite Up Only episode is uh, Michael Sailor talking to Kobe because it's like Sailor interviewing Sailor on Sailor. It's like so like he's in his own head and crazy. And I, I think like when you say crazy stuff on podcasts, like, you know, it's going to get around and it's not surprising. And juxtaposing that with like Vitalik and like how uh, he's just like the best possible unelected leader of Ethereum that you could possibly ever get. Like one of our LPs who's super into the Grateful Dead thinks he's a lot like Jerry Garcia, where he's kind of like this guy who was this average dude and like not really ever wanted to lead, but was just chosen and placed atop a throne. And like, it's like he's walking through every day as if it was like his first day on the planet. It's like incredible, like great meme content. Obviously the picture from this week is like very demonstrative of like my last point where like some things like just don't seem to register, but that's like the best part of it. He, you know, you just know that he doesn't really have a mean bone in his body. Um, and he's just uniquely well qualified for a number of reasons that, you know, uh, he has. One of, uh, one of our founders who is, is not Vitalik, but, you know, I would say up there in terms of stature in a lot of ways, uh, once asked me in, who is memed more than about any other founder we we could possibly think of. He asked me one time, he, he goes, why am I such a meme? And like to this day, it, it like still sticks in the back of my head. It's just like, do you think that, you know, people who are getting memed actually know it and like think about it and react to it? Like, I wonder if I wonder what Vitalik's reaction was to this this week. Because I, I remember the sharding episode when we were all making those jokes on Twitter and like being like, ah, sharding, sharding. It's like, OK. And he was like, I'm going to quit if you keep doing this. And one of the first tweets I saw after that picture got out was uh, this guy named State Layer who works at PseudoSwap being like, I'm not here for the Vitalik jokes. We're not making them this time. Like if he leaves, I'm going to kill all of you. It's like, yes, protect Vitalik at all costs. That's very much my mindset at the moment. Whatever he says goes. You know, you could be accused of worse things, is what I will say for, uh, <laughs> for old Vitalik. <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, tweet of the week. Do you guys have any, have any suggestions? Any thoughts? Play of the week? Take the week? Uh, my, my first one was going to be what we just talked about. Oh, I, mean, I, that, I have that one, actually. Time. Um, uh, let's see if I can find this one. I've got one, too, while you're finding that. All right, I'm going to share my screen here. Actually, I'll just read it to you. This is the this is the tweet. White smoke has emerged from the chimney atop North Hollywood High School, signaling that Leonardo DiCaprio has chosen a new girlfriend. Jesus Christ! <laughs> <laughs> I was I was literally about to say the one that I liked was uh, uh, Kate Winslet versus uh, 
old version of Kate Winslet, 25 versus 26. That's really funny. All right, this is this is my favorite. <laughs> yes, I saw that one. <laughs> the guy sweating. The guy sweating, but choosing between two two buttons, right? And you're up on the bottom. I'm just telling. I know you guys can see it, but I'm telling folks who are listening. Uh, starve, but be woke. Turn on nuclear power plants. Can't make the decision between them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a little dark because that one's stuff playing out in real time. <laughs> I know, but it's real. One that, uh, the yeah. one that I liked. Yeah. And this flew a little bit under the radar. I'm going to put this in the chat so we can share it. Um, Fubar is a great follow on Twitter. Uh, there's this guy, Gabriel Layden who came from Machine Zone. He was the CEO. He's now starting in Web3. He's just been like terrorizing crypto Twitter all week. And yeah, is this yeah, the Digi Digi Daiku Daiku guy? guy. And like, you know, people have strong <laughs> opinions about him. I'll kind of leave it at that. But I thought Fubar's tweet captured it perfectly mm-hmm. where he said, it's been a while since we had a cult founder out for blood. This time is different. When you become the main character of crypto Twitter, there really is only one preordained outcome that we know of today. And that is basically, you know, things get crazy at some point and you get nuked. And so it's crazy to see someone kind of step onto the scene because a lot of the loudest voices in the room were like Sue and Kyle and uh, Doe and people like that. And so, yeah, I mean, it appears that we have, you know, a potential new at least side character, maybe not main character. um, And uh, hopefully this time is different. Keep keep in mind, Machine Zone raised at four and a half billion, I think, and then sold for two hundred and fifty million. So, Did you guys invest in this company? That's that's a loss yeah. for people for keeping track of the math at home. <laughs> I do not think this guy is a good uh, good new face of crypto Twitter. I'm just going to say that. Uh, well, he did he did just raise two hundred million dollars <laughs> for marketing. Apparently, okay, I've got a question. Do you <laughs> guys think if Elon Musk successfully like rides off into the sunset? that he will flip this rule and that like trolling people on Twitter actually will end in a good result. Like if Elon Musk like flies off to Mars, like being valued at a trillion dollars personally and was like, yep, I told the SEC to go suck Elon's, you know, whatever. Like he just might, like he could, might, he might personally flip the rule of the universe and then that behavior will be acceptable. I think it's already acceptable. The inter- intergalactic <laughs> SEC though. I, that's true. I think it's already acceptable. Yeah. I was talking to the a partner, one of the biggest, like one of the, I would argue the top five crypto funds, they are now encouraging their founders to be louder and like more, as he described it, he said more dough like on Twitter. He goes, he goes, we don't tell anyone to go full dough, but like we, we think it's a smart strategy to be a, be a little louder. I was like, yeah, it's smart, smart to be a little louder. Telling people to be dough like, he said a little more dough like, so there's better examples. I, I would say, yeah, th- there's better examples, um, but having a loud founder yeah. is not a bad thing. Who's your, who's your, better who's your favorite are? founder right now? Like in your in your portfolio? Who's our, or who's like, our favorite or who, founder? Who, yeah. And, and then if you have children, who are two founders who have, I'll ask it in a PC way, like very impressed, who have impressed you this year or something. I don't know. That's so much lamer. I think the the Kane comeback arc and like just you know taking the beatings during the bear market or the bull market from Sue about like you know the houses he bought and like turning synthetics around and like kind of telling the haters to go fuck themselves that's been pretty impressive. Um, I'm trying to think of who else. It's been pretty quiet on Twitter, you know, as you would probably expect after the industry getting nuked. How about uh, how about Stardust? Uh, Stardust. That's okay. uh, Canon is a is a gigabrain. 
Cannon. <laughs> I don't know how to Cannon the I don't know how to Cannon the Cannon name, but I talked to him. That's it. I was that's like, a, you are a giga brand. I like you. <laughs> that's a uh, that's a great new nickname. Um, the uh, so Kanan was uh, you know lesser known than Kane, for instance. But uh, I think they have really come out and um, Stardust is is centralized, no token. So you're probably not going to hear about it as much. It's also infrastructure, so it's going to be underneath the surface. But I, I'd say Kanan would be uh, my choice as well. Um, it, the the groundswell of of talent that they have is yeah. uh, is growing. There's also a lot of young bucks that are just getting started, you know. Yep. So uh, let those let those plants grow. We'll we'll, we'll come back Bunch to those six bucks. months. All right. All right. <laughs> let's, let's wrap. I think finger guns is a good place to wrap it. So this was fun, fellas. <laughs> we'll see you at the same time next week. All right. Thanks Cheers, a lot, guys. guys. Take care. Time. See you guys. Yeah.